Hi, everybody. This is uh, God's Hot for the Sad Truth. Today, I have one of those rare situations where I have a repeat guest. He is, he was so good the first time that I had to uh, implore him to come back on the show. Dr. Paul Offit, how are you doing, sir? I'm good. Happy to be back. Oh, thank you so much. Okay, let me just read. Uh, I need to not wear glasses because apparently I'm old. You are the Maurice R. Hillman Professor of Vaccinology and Professor of Pediatrics at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, former chief of Division of Infectious Diseases and the director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, co-inventor of a rotavirus vaccine. So you're certainly well qualified to talk about what we've been facing the last few years. Author of over 150 scientific articles. I won't mention all of your books, but I'll mention at least the two books that have come out since the last time you were on, which was in April 2020. Uh, you Bet Your Life from transfusions to mass vaccination, the long and risky history of medical innovation. And the one that I just read recently, causing me to make sure to call you back on the show, Overkill, which I'd like to spend some time talking about. Did I cover some of the key points? Is that good? Yeah, uh, sounds good. <laughs> okay, so let's let's begin with obviously what probably most people would want to know. We spoke at the start of the pandemic, where even back then, if I remember correctly, you were saying, well, you know, let's not go crazy in terms of the draconian measures that we might implement. Life is about trade-offs, cost-benefits. Fast forward now, three years later, give us the big synopsis. Where are we? Where did we go wrong? What did we do right? Give it to us all. Right. We had to go wrong because it was a new virus. It was a new disease. Um, we um, definitely, you learn as you go. And, you know, in, in terms of uh, therapies or uh, diagnostics, you know, you're building the plane while it's in the air. So there had to be mistakes that are made. I think, I think the big mistakes in retrospect were one, um, testing. When the CDC sort of took it upon themselves to create a test kit, uh, they very quickly should have farmed that out to a number of other laboratories, commercial laboratories to do that, because that, that way you hedge your bets. Because what ended up happening was that the uh, the control in that test kit didn't work right. So they had to recall the test kits and it really set, uh, set us back. There were many other countries that were way ahead of us on doing testing, which was important. So you could figure out where the hotspots were. I think we had to learn about transmission. I mean, the assumption was that it was it was uh, the respiratory route, but there was also an understanding likely that it could have been spread by sort of fomites, hand mouth. So people were asked to kind of wash cans in grocery stores. That was probably all wrong. And initially it was because the initial cases and the deaths were nursing homes and uh, cruise ships, which is is what you see with a, a, an enteric virus, a, a GI virus, intestinal virus like uh, neurovirus. So um, that also made us think there was an intestinal component to this, which was also wrong. And then masking. Masking wasn't really encouraged a lot at the beginning when masks clearly were a value. Um, and so that we learned. Um, but I think mostly uh, the, the, the good news was here was a virus that came into this country in like January 2020. That virus was isolated and sequenced in January 2020. 11 months later, using a novel technology, messenger RNA, um, we were able to do two large clinical trials, you know, 40,000 for Pfizer, 30,000 for Moderna, large prospective placebo-controlled trials showing that this, this novel technology show, was safe and effective. That is amazing. That is the fastest vaccine ever made, and, and, and it worked. And so that, that was the, the bright and shining star. And then I think when the, but that was under the Trump administration with Operation Warp Speed. And then when the Biden administration took over, they were very good at mass producing, mass distributing, mass administering a vaccine in a public health system that didn't really have a mass immunization scheme for adults. So that, that was all good. Um, but nonetheless, we probably have had about 1.2 million deaths. We probably have had 20% of the world's deaths with only 4% of the world's population. So we certainly could have done better. Okay, so uh, about four months ago, I was uh, driving with my family. I think it was around September. And uh, I arrogantly stated, you know, I think we're immune to this virus because none of us have gotten it. And I think we're home free now. It's the end. Well, you know, they always say, uh, if you want to make God laugh, uh, tell him his your plans or something to that effect. Well, about a week later, my son, my young son came down with uh, the virus and then I knew that it was inevitable that we'd all get it. I got it. Then my wife got it. Then my daughter got it. So I went on my social media 
And I simply wrote something to the effect, despite having been vaccinated four times so far, I I now have the thing, right? Now, the incredible thing is that both camps, the anti-vax people were very angry at me and the vax people were very angry at me. The anti-vax people were very angry at me because you're supposed to be this great intellect intellectual. You're supposed to be the guy who wrote the parasitic mind. You're a moron. You're a fraud. You took <laughs> the vaccine. They fooled you. The people who were for the vax said, why did you write the word despite having had, you still got it. You, you have a large platform. You're now creating vaccine hesitancy. And I said, you know, it doesn't matter what I say, even if it's innocuous, even though I was just looking for something like, hey, I hope you get through this very nicely. People are, you're going to trigger people people's ire. So where do we stand on this? Was it good? I mean, I know you don't know my medical history. I'm knock on wood, a healthy person. I used to be overweight. I'm not. I used to have asthma, not so much anymore. Uh, the the calculus was that I should take the vaccine. What is it? Are there any uh, controversies about the safety of the vaccine? Who should take it and so on and so forth? Because I hear it from both ends that I'm an idiot. Right. Well, you're not an idiot. I'm going to support that. But I, here's what I would say. I would say if, if I had to pick the moment where we made the biggest communications error about this vaccine, it was July 4th, 2021. Because what happened was when we did the vaccine trials that were then presented to our committee, I'm on the FDA's vaccine advisory committee. When, when those trials were presented to us on December 10th and December 17th of 2020, um, those vaccines were highly effective. They were 95% effective against all manner of symptomatic illness, including mild illness. That couldn't last. Protection against mild illness that high could not last. The reason it was so high in those trials was those were three-month trials. Those, people, those participants had just gotten their second dose. So they still had a high level of neutralizing antibodies following that dose. Neutralizing antibodies are not long-lived. And this is a short incubation period mucosal infection. So mild illness had to occur. Um, even if you were vaccinated, and that's what happened. So, so, so now on July fourth, there was um, thousands of men got together to celebrate Independence Day at, at in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Um, there was like about seventy nine percent were were vaccinated. Well, nonetheless, there were three hundred and forty six cases of um, COVID in, in people who were vaccinated. Four of those people were hospitalized. So that's a hospitalization rate of one point two percent. That's good. That's a vaccine working well. The remaining 342 people had a mild illness or asymptomatic infection, which were inadvertently or unfortunately labeled by the CDC in their, their morbidity and mortality weekly report publication as breakthrough illnesses. The word breakthrough implies failure. If you have a mild infection or an asymptomatic infection, you win. The goal of this vaccine is to keep you out of the hospital, keep you out of the ICU and keep you out of the morgue. And that's what that vaccine was doing. That should have been a moment to celebrate the vaccine, but it wasn't. And so hence the word breakthrough was born. So so very soon after that, Brett Kavanaugh, just as part of a routine test uh, as Supreme Court justice, gets an asymptomatic infection. If you watch the way that was carried on the national media, you would have thought this man was fighting for his life. He had an asymptomatic infection. Uh, Lindsey Graham, who I don't often quote for you know medical information, actually got this right. He had a, a mild two-day illness, had some sinusitis, and he said, and I quote, this would have been much worse if I hadn't been vaccinated. Right. That's exactly Exactly right. And we just never got so. So what we did was we created an unrealistic expectation. So people, you know, I just got vaccinated or I got vaccinated six months ago and now I have a mild illness. They promised me that this would work and now it doesn't work. But it was doing exactly what it could do, which is prevent a, 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 a more serious illness, which is the only reasonable goal for this vaccine. It's the only attainable goal for this vaccine. The long incubation period diseases like measles, smallpox, uh, German measles, rubella, you can eliminate those diseases because you can even prevent mild disease with those infections because they're, they have a long incubation period. So just memory uh, immune cells are good enough to protect you for, for a long time. That can't be, so you can eliminate, we, small, we did eliminate smallpox. We eliminated measles from this country by 20, by the year 2000. I mean, it's come back because a critical percentage of parents have chosen not to vaccinate their children anymore, but, um, you, but you'll never eliminate this virus any more than you would eliminate influenza. 
I mean, I was fortunate enough, as you mentioned, to work on a rotavirus vaccine. That's another short incubation period of mucosal virus. We've basically eliminated hospitalizations from that virus with that vaccine, which came out 17 years ago. But the virus still circulates in the community. The virus still causes mild disease in the community. And that's always going to happen, even though 95% of babies are vaccinated. So I think we have to get people to accept mild illness. And we can't um, because of the way I think the expectations that we created. Where, where do you, on the continuum of, I, I don't know exactly which continuum to use, but I recently had over the past few months, uh, Scott Atlas, whom I, I suppose you know, and uh, Jay Batashria, both of whom I got a chance to meet at, at Stanford, and they came on the show. Of course, Jay was part of the, you know, the three co-authors of the Great Barrington Declaration. I, and I think to, to summarize it quickly for our listeners and viewers, they were basically taking a tempered position. Yes, of course, there is a virus. Yes, of course, blah, blah, blah. But maybe we don't need to be shutting down the world. Maybe, you know, the, the consequences of doing all of these sort of, quote, draconian efforts might not be beneficial in a cost-benefit analysis. Where do you fall in terms of what they were arguing? Are you in that camp or, or are you a bit more tempered? Where do you fit in that continuum? Uh, probably a little more tempered. I, I think in retrospect, we shouldn't have closed schools for young children, uh, although young children can be hospitalized and can be admitted to the intensive care unit and can die because we, I work at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I can tell you that's true. They still have a roughly thousand fold less likelihood of dying than say someone who's over 65 years of age. And I think something like 93% of the deaths in this country have been in people over 55. So, so, and I think there was a tremendous price to pay for shutting down schools in terms of socialization, in terms of education. I think, and if, interestingly, the American Academy of Pediatrics, when this virus first rolled in this country, argued to not shut down schools. They did. And then they changed that for, for I'm not sure what reasons. Um, maybe it was because the teachers associations really didn't like that uh, because they, they, they truly, especially older teachers, really were at risk. But so I think that, that I, I think in retrospect, we shouldn't have done. But um, I, I certainly disagree with Scott Atlas. I mean, his notion was, you know, just let the virus run wild and we'll develop natural immunity and then we'll all be protected. But, you know, the price of natural infection is, you know, that's it. You might die. So so I think, you know, you have to be careful about the, the immunity induced by natural infection can be long lived and, and highly protective against severe disease. But there is a price to pay for certain groups. So so protect those high risk groups, you know, people who are elderly, especially people over 75, protect people who are immune compromised, protect people who have a variety of comorbidities where even a mild infection could land them in the hospital, protect them. But remember, especially in multi-generational homes, the only way to protect them is to make sure everybody gets vaccinated. So I think certainly everybody should, should be, be vaccinated. That's easy. Um, and then in terms of, um, you know, shutting things down early on, I think, you, you know, you learn about that in, in retrospect. Because remember, in, year, in 2020, when this virus rolled in this country, before we had a vaccine, you didn't have vaccines, you didn't have monoclonal antibodies, you didn't have antivirals. All you had was trying to to, pro, to to limit human to human contact. That's all you had from a virus that ultimately killed 1.2 million people. So I think the initial response to that, which is limit human to human contact, was the right move. It was the only thing we had at the time. Remember, and also the, the surprise was the degree to which someone who was asymptomatic could transmit that virus. Therefore, everybody was at risk. The person you passed on the street who looked perfectly fine could be a source of virus for you. And if you're in a high-risk group, could be a source of fatal virus for you. Got it. A couple of more questions on COVID, and then we can move to some other uh, exciting. Well, I'm good with COVID. I, we have a vaccine advisory committee com meeting coming up on Thursday um, to discuss, you know, vaccine composition and are we going to have a yearly vaccine? Are we going to sort of base this on the flu model? So that's all I've been talking about for the last few days. And <laughs> got the, the FDA briefing document on this, so I'm up to date on this. You guys oh, you oh great, great. Uh, so what what's the what's your uh, understanding or, or, or how settled? quote is the science, although of course, science is always provisional, truths are always provisional. Where are we with the link between the vaccine and the uh, heart inflammation in young people? And the reason why I ask this is because, as you know, recently there was a, uh, a difficult situation in a Buffalo Bills game where a, a player uh, uh, you know, suffered cardiac arrest, they had to resuscitate him. And then of course, everybody went on and said, yeah, that's due to the vaccine. And I put out a tweet where I said, look, uh, let's, you know, let's, let's not be orgiastic in linking every single <clears throat> possible cardiac arrest <clears throat> without, 
I didn't know the literature, right? I'm just saying that it seems as though we're creating a an ecosystem of focusality where every time someone who's young has a heart situation, it must be due to the fact that they were vaccinated. So where are we right now in our scientific understanding? Is there a problematic link between the COVID vaccine and heart inflammation? <clears throat> there certainly is a, a causal link between vaccination and myocarditis and pericarditis. No doubt about it. Uh, the the um, it's, it's unclear why. I mean, it may be, as was actually noticed in 2020, that SARS-CoV-2 virus, the spike protein, mimics um, a one of the proteins on heart muscle cells, specifically the, the heavy chain of of uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of um, actin. So so if that's true, then while you're making an immune response to the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, you're also inadvertently making an immune response to your own heart muscle. There was a study done in in, uh, there've been a couple studies. Remember, the, this is also true for, the, for natural infection. When you're naturally infected, also that is a cause of myocarditis for the same reason. Um, there was a study done in Thailand where they looked at children, 300 children between 13 and 18 years of age, given one and then two doses of the Pfizer vaccine. And after the second dose, they they measured both at time zero and then time three days later, seven days later, 14 later, days later. They looked at troponin, which is a heart muscle enzyme that when the heart muscle is damaged, will spill into the circulation and increase in the bloodstream and found that 2.5% of those children had a transient increase in troponin, which came back down again. Uh, the same thing is true. It's roughly also about 2.5% for uh, people who have uh, even an asymptomatic COVID infection. So um, yeah, there is there is a transient effect on heart, but so, so it's a heart, it's a myocarditis. When you have what happened to uh, uh, Darren Hamlin, is that Hamlin, I know is his last name, I think it's, right. but in any case, um, Devin. Um, with the, like, but Hamlin is right, I think, so you, we're good. I, I should know this because I'm actually a football fan, but um, Eagles fan. To be oh, specific. congratulations. Yeah, so we have tickets. We're going to the game uh, on Sunday. So I, I, I guess you you forgot where my address is for the invitation to come and join you. You, that, <laughs> so you're you're a Niners fan. Uh, I'm actually not neither. I used to be a Dallas Cowboys fan a long time ago. Then I moved to San Francisco as a fan when Joe Montana was big. And then I actually used to like recently the New Orleans Saints because I love Drew Brees and Alvin Kamara. So now I'm homeless. I'm looking for a team. So convince me that I should like the, the Eagles, Dr. Offit. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's first, first of all, how many Super Bowls have we won in our, in our history? One. One. It's like, you know, it's, it gives us a break. We need something good. Um, so in any case, the I mean, what happened to him, and again, I don't know his medical history. I wasn't there when they were taking care of him, so I don't know this. But certainly the the prevailing opinion is the so-called commotio cordis, which is that you he had an arrhythmia, a dysrhythmia, which causes heart to stop. That's really not myocarditis. So I'm not sure where, I don't think that, that there's any evidence that this vaccine causes a dysrhythmia or arrhythmia that would cause your heart to stop beating. So I, I don't think that's related. But, but you know, certainly the, the um, you know, for example, when we approved these vaccines back in December of 2020, you know, you're always basing it on the data that you have. And even though you had a 40,000 person study with Pfizer, that means 20,000 people got vaccinated, the rest were placebo. And then for five, for Moderna, it was 15,000 got vaccinated. So, you know, you're making decisions based on tens of thousands of people, data on tens of thousands of people, which is not tens of millions of people or hundreds of millions of people. So you always or waiting for that other shoe to drop, because you know that there may be a rare adverse event that you didn't find because your study wasn't big enough, even though it was a huge study. And, and so that's, that's, yes, myocarditis is a consequence. I think we'll find out um, to what extent that there's any long-term consequences with this over time. But, but know this, the virus also caused it. I mean, when, when we would take care of kids with so-called MIS-C, this multi-system inflammatory disease of children, which is a striking disorder. I mean, these kids, five to 13 years of age, sort of average nine years of age, suffer usually an asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic COVID infection, just happen to be picked up because they were exposed to a friend or family member. Fine, get better, running, playing, normal, no fever. And then a month later, they had they come into the hospital with you know significant lung disease, high fever, kidney disease, liver disease, heart disease, you know, which often lands them in the intensive care unit, and um, and and can affect you know the so-called ejection fraction of their. I mean, that's much more serious heart disease associated with the virus, and and it's, it's, a, it's a scary virus. So. Get vaccinated. And, and, you know, there's always risks and benefits. Any, whether you, it's, you inject yourself with a biological, in this case, or take an antibiotic, anything that has a positive effect in medicine can have a negative effect. You just want to make sure the positive effect is dramatically better than the negative effect um, because there are no, there's never risk-free choices, just choices to take different risks.
Got you. Okay. Two, two last questions on COVID. <clears throat> Number one, you have a lot of the folks, maybe they're conspiracy theorists, maybe they're not, who, who argue that, you know, sort of the draconian measures that governments uh, enacted and implemented was part of this kind of authoritarian power grab. And certainly as someone who lives in Quebec, few places were as draconian in the policies that they've enacted than, than Canada in general and Quebec in particular. I mean, there was a time not too long ago where we were under nighttime curfew, where you couldn't walk your dog outside. Now, you don't need to be a virologist or an epidemiologist to sort of wonder, you know, you know, which brain trust kids came up with the idea that it's bad to be walking your your dog outside. And so there is this kind of, so part of part of the haphazard, you know, enactments of different COVID policies might have been, as you said, you're building the plane as you're flying it. I get that, seat of the pant decision making. But a lot of people argue that, no, there was something nefarious, something political, a power grab by governments. Uh, I understand that this is a political question I'm asking you. What if you had to allocate a hundred points to bad decisions that were made that were due to, you know, ignorance versus to nefarious causes? How many points would you allocate to each? I I, I would I would allocate none to nefarious causes. I didn't see that. I mean, I'm yeah. I'm you know, it's on the advisory committee for immunization practices, CDC. This is the government. I mean, I'm currently on the FDA vaccine advisory committee. That's the government. I think people are trying to do the right thing. Um, I do think sometimes um, people have certain people who are in power have very strong opinions about what the way it should be and kind of push it um, and don't necessarily always take the advice or sort of ignore the advice or bypass the advice of these advisory committees uh, because they want to do a certain thing. But I think they're always trying to do the right thing. It may not be the right thing, but I think they're always trying to do the right thing. So I assigned zero points in nefarious, even to you know Donald Trump. I was not a big fan of Donald Trump. I think when he was pushing, you know, ultraviolet light treatment or oleander leaves or Clorox chewables, whatever the hell else he was promoting, I, I think he really didn't think that was helping right. or hydroxychloroquine. I mean, he he really, you know, really, frankly, twisted the arm of the FDA who approved a drug, hydroxychloroquine, which didn't work to treat or prevent the disease, could cause heart arrhythmias, including fatal heart arrhythmias. And that was, I think, a low moment for the FDA when they approved that for three months before they withdrew that approval. But I, it wasn't nefarious. It was just ill-considered and ultimately ill-fated. Got you. Uh, are there any lessons that we've learned from the current pandemic that we could then now use? Here are seven best practices that we hadn't known prior to facing this pandemic that for the, God forbid, the next pandemic, although I'm not much of a religious person. So how about we go with Darwin forbid, uh, there wouldn't be any, uh, you know, future pandemics. W what are two, three, four, however many you can come up off the top of your mind, best practices that we've come up with that can hopefully better arm us moving forward? Okay, number one, there will be another pandemic. I mean, we had a SARS-1 pandemic in 2003. We had a MERS pandemic, another coronavirus spillover event from animals to people um, in 2012. Now we have this virus, which you know came around in 2019. That's three in the past 20 years. Let's assume we're not done with this for the, for the rest of our existence. There'll be another pandemic. I think the most important thing is, is to have an international surveillance system that the minute that kind of virus pops up, you know about it. So you can start doing the kind of things you need to do, which is create personal protective equipment, you know, get enough ventilators in the case of a respiratory virus, et cetera. And we didn't have that. Uh, and so what we had to depend on was a whistleblower in, in, in Wuhan, China, an ophthalmologist who stood, yeah. stood up and said, you know, uh, hundreds of people being hospitalized and people are dying from a virus that we have never seen before. Um, we shouldn't have had to have depended on that. And China also was not did not very not very open about uh, letting scientists go in there to look very closely at what was happening. What that ended up doing because they because they did that, it gave rise to conspiracy theories which haven't died. And I'm sure in this Republican Congress you're going to see. Um, you know, you're going to see even more meetings where and, and, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci is going to be dragged up before Republican-led committees and once again try to explain that this is, is not a product of, of uh, a laboratory in Wuhan, but rather was a, a spillover event from nature, which happens all the time with the viruses and bacteria that we confront. Uh, and I feel sorry for Dr. Fauci, who I think deserves a, a calmer retirement. So that's number one, an international surveillance system. Let this know that's happening. Number two is 
have a pandemic plan plan clearly in place like we did actually with h5n1 you know the bird flu when that raised its head in the early 2000s i think we had a plan in place which was basically torn up when, when this when this pandemic hit i think uh you know, the previous administration, the Trump administration was just hoping it would go away and kept trying to sort of deny it. You know, it's going to be gone by Easter, April of 2020, obviously, which was silly. And and so 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 do the best you can. And and I think one thing that was good was Operation Warp Speed. I mean, that was amazing. I mean, basically what what they the government did was they took the risk out of it for pharmaceutical companies. We'll we'll you know, we'll pay for you to mass produce this vaccine before we ever know whether it works or is safe. We'll pay for your phase three studies. We'll pay for your research studies. I mean, they made it easy for the pharmaceutical companies because normally companies aren't going to take that kind of risk. They're going to go phase one, phase two, phase three, then mass produce. Then, you know, they're not going to do that all at the same time. I mean, that that was amazing the way that all worked. And that administration has to be given credit for that. Because what they did was normally you go to the racetrack, you know, you bet on one horse to win a race. You don't bet on five or six, which is what they did, because they were willing to take the loss. And that that was tremendous. But um, I, th I think so. I think that's it. Uh, uh, international surveillance, pandemic preparedness to, to get ready for this, and then and then protect high-risk groups. Know who those groups are. Very quickly, you saw this was this was the angel of death for nursing homes. I mean, 40% of those early deaths were in nursing homes and, and the elderly, and that's still true. I mean, if you look at who's getting hospitalized and who's dying, it's older people, and it's, it's what I would call the elderly elderly, especially as I get older. I, I prefer that term. I noticed, by the way, that uh, is it correct for me to, to point out that you seem to have lost a noticeable amount of weight. Is that true? Have I? <laughs> you, you look thinner, but I'm uh, I'm disappointed that you haven't noticed how svelte and gorgeous I'm looking. Since the last time that we, you and I spoke, I probably dropped. I guess April 2020 we spoke maybe 50 pounds, but in total, wow. in total, from my heaviest weight, Paul, 86 pounds. Come on, let's hear it from the physician. Give me the standing ovation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 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 I mean. I've basically in, in, increased my longevity in 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 infinite amount of way. I mean, blood pressure, the, you know, the whole thing, right? I mean, it's it's you know, it's funny because for about twenty years, I've I've fought trying to um, to lose the weight that I had gained, you know, after you know my soccer career had finished and so on, uh, and I wasn't able to. And then COVID came, and in a sense, I turned this you know the dreadful reality of COVID and being locked down into a positive because I didn't have the pull of going to restaurants. It was easier to implement a, you know, a caloric strategy because we were under lockdown so that my wife could exactly control the amount of, you know, variety is the spice of life, but it's also a intoxicating pull because there, especially in a place like Montreal, there's a, a an endless source of possible, you know, restaurants that you can go to. And so, Forevermore, I can think back. Yes, there were some negative elements of COVID, but it was, in a sense, COVID that allowed me to have the discipline and the constraints necessary to lose all the weight that I did. Congratulations. That's great. Not an easy thing to do. Thank you so much. Okay. Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, Anthony Fauci, which is actually going to be a very nice segue to this book, which I'd like to spend a bit of time talking about. So one of the things uh, you might have heard the the, the term epistemic humility, right? We'd like to think that scientists exhibit epistemic humility, although academics and scientists are human, therefore they have egos, therefore it's difficult to get them to alter their positions when they're anchored in a particular position. From, from my perspective at looking at the, at the positions that Anthony Fauci has taken throughout the pandemic, it seemed as though he lacked epistemic humility. Now, the, the reason why that serves as a well, you can eventually weigh in on what I just said, but the reason that I, the way that I would segue into this, because each of the examples in this book that you talk about are, are ultimately a manifestation of the lack of epistemic humility that physicians are exhibiting, right? Because what you do in the book, uh, and then of course I'll, I'll ask you to fill in any blanks, is you take a whole bunch of things that we th we thought were true, you know, take vitamin C, it will reduce your likelihood of you contracting the common cold. And then you demonstrate, well, wait a second, here's a slew of studies that suggest that it's not true. By the way, speaking of epistemic, uh, lack of ep epistemic humility, I just purchased in Sarasota, the biography of Linus Pauling. And Linus Pauling is at the center of that particular example, because notwithstanding the amount of evidence that, you know, he was being shown, that you know his position was not true and he's a two-time nobel prize winner he was going la 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 i don't want to hear it so 
I I often joke that the, the the most difficult thing to do in in nature is not to understand the evolution of human consciousness is actually to get a person to change their opinion on anything. If you could solve that problem, you're you're heading to receive the Nobel Prize. So why is it? So you can tell me if you agreed about the lack of epistemic humility of Anthony Fauci, or we can skip it. Why is it that physicians who are uh, mandated to you know offer us the best possible service are complete completely impervious to all of the evidence that would otherwise cause them to change their positions i think it's a few things i think one it's inertia i mean they've been doing this thing this way for a long period of time and they believe it's a value um and so to say it's not a value is is a very hard thing to do. i mean if you look at, at for example you know prostate screening programs, thyroid screening programs. I mean, I think doctors believe that that in those programs, they're saving people's lives. So then when you look at data, for example, showing that if you go through, in the case of prostate screening, you know, getting PS, these prostate-specific prostate antigens, so-called PSA, as a way of determining who is at risk and who isn't, and then identifying a high-risk group, and then, you know, uh, doing either radiation therapy or... Uh, or uh, uh, prostatectomies, that that is saving people's lives. And then you do the kinds of studies to answer the question, well, is that true? I mean, is, are people who go through all that less likely, one, like more likely to live longer, but more importantly, less likely to die of prostate cancer? And you find that the answer is no, that that, that, that doesn't do it. And the, the, the best analogy I have for this is uh, there's a, a, an epidemiologist named Gilbert Welch, who I think had the best analogy, which is you, you go to a barn, right? And you open the door. There's three animals in, in the barn, one, a turtle, a bird, and a rabbit. Uh, the, the bird's out in a second. I mean, you, you can't close that door quickly enough. That's a cancer you're going to die from no matter what you do. You're going to die from that. Even if you diagnose it and you think you're diagnosing it early, you're going to die from that cancer. The second is the turtle, which is is represents the cancer you're going to die with and not from. So if you take 85-year-old men, 90-year-old men who've died from something else, a lot of them have prostate cancer, right? They've died with prostate cancer. And then there's the rabbit. That's what you're trying to do, because there, if you can diagnose it early, you can that you can shut that door before the rabbit gets out. So that's the cr critical question, say, with prostate cancer. Is it is it a lot of rabbits or is it mostly birds and turtles? And the answer is it's mostly birds and turtles. That's also true for thyroid cancer. I think what surprises me most is I think that's probably also true for colon cancer. I mean, there was just a paper you saw out of Europe where they looked at people who did went through the whole thing with, you know, get coligard or do the fit test and, and identify who's at risk, do colonoscopies, remove polyps that are precancerous, and, and then you've saved their life from colon cancer. No. And I think the reason for that is I, I, I lay this at the feet of pathologists, because what pathologists will do is they'll call something precancerous, like prostatic intraepithelial neoplasia type two or whatever, or, you know, they'll say a precancerous polyp. And, and that doesn't really tell you whether this is a cancer you're going to die with or from it, it because you, you need better markers, whether it's genetic markers or biochemical markers, say this is a cancer you could die with uh, uh, from. So you need to do something or as this is a cancer you can die with because they're all called cancer. To me, the word cancer means you're going to die from it unless you do something. But it, it's, it's not that anymore. And I think. And I think getting to get back to your question, I think it's very hard for people to get away from that. I mean, I, you know, see doctors and they ask me to do all these things. And I've said, you know, don't get PSAs on me. Don't do that. I don't want to know. Don't tell me. I don't want to know. I may die of prostate cancer. I don't think you're going to do anything that's going to prevent that. Don't get a colagard on me. Don't get, a, you know, I don't, I don't want to know because all it's going to do is make me nervous in these last 10 or 15 years of my life while I wait for the gentle embrace and warm embrace of death. Oh, how poetic. Uh, but, but I mean, it, it seems as though, so I'm, you know, as a behavioral scientist, as a psychologist, I want to understand why is it that we're susceptible to not shifting from our anchored position? So in the context of the examples that you discuss in, in the book, I think maybe we have a, 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 a penchant, a preference for action rather than inaction. Some, somehow action makes us feel as though we are being proactive in doing something. That, is there, do you buy that argument? Does that, does that seem to make sense? 
Yes. Uh, antibiotics are probably the best example. I mean, yeah. when someone comes in, you know, the, you know, the patient wants that prescription because then they feel like they're doing something, even though it's just a viral infection and it's going to go away, whether you give them an antibiotic or not. And all you're doing is really increasing the risks that are associated with any therapy, including antibiotics and promoting, you know, bacterial resistance, antibiotic resistance. So yes, it's the desire to that doing something is that doing nothing is not considered doing something, whereas doing nothing is doing something. And I just right. think it's hard for people to understand that. And I mean, you you see this kind of bias, let's say in the what, what's called the null effects bias in scientific publishing, right? Uh, to, to report that you got no effect in a paper, many editors will say, well, that I, I can't really, I can't publish that because I need to see a finding because a finding seems as though it's worthy of being published. A, a null effect, but that too is a finding. Oftentimes there's great diagnostic value. I mean, I remember I, I wrote, a, I, I did a big, big study looking at dysphoria, right? The opposite of euphoria, a kind of an enduring state of blueness. Uh, I looked at the effects of dysphoria on decision-making across, I think, 16 or 17 different dependent variables, uh, comparing dysphorics to non-dysphorics. And in all but one, I found no difference in terms of how people made decisions as a function of whether they were dysphoric or not, which struck me as surprising, which was counter to sort of the prevailing understanding of how dysphoria might affect decision-making. I sent it to a journal, a special issue on you know, how emotions affect uh, cognition. So it was perfectly suited. The editor writes back to me, says, love the paper, love the, the, the methodology, love everything. Too bad, Gad, you, you, got, you obtained no finding. I said, but that is the robustness of the non-finding is worthy of being in the literature. Now you're going to do meta-analyses where all of these non-findings are not going to be reported. So I think there is it is it is an inherent part of the mind's architecture to always prefer something over nothing. Absolutely. You that feel like doing something. You feel like you're making a difference. How does doing nothing make a difference? But you could argue that like if the, thing, the examples that we just used with thyroid screening programs and, you know, and thyroidectomies or partial thyroidectomies, which means, you know, thyroid replacement therapy, which is very hard to, to gauge in terms of how much to give. We're doing prostate surgery or, you know, and all the complications that are associated with prostate surgery in terms of urination or, or, uh, or uh, how it can affect sexual function, et cetera. I mean, that, that's all, everything has a cost. Everything you do has a cost. That, that antibiotic prescription you write has a cost. So doing nothing is doing something because you're avoiding that cost. And it's it's hard for people to see it that way. Right. Well, I, I think the example that originally resonated the most uh, with me as someone who, you know, who's lectured and written about evolutionary medicine is that your example with fever, right? Uh, that's straight out of evolutionary medicine. All of the symptoms that you, the, 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 the negative symptoms that you experience with the you know, fever and chills and so on, those are adaptive mechanisms meant to expel the viral load. So when we take a cold medicine, yes, I understand. I want to feel better for today, tonight's exam, but from an evolutionary perspective, it is the perfectly incorrect thing to do. But incidentally, how much of, I can't remember if we discussed this the last time that you were here, how much of your work, at, you know, as a practicing pediatrician and virologist for the past 30 plus years is informed directly via evolutionary principles? I think much. I, I mean, really? I think, the, yeah, I mean, I think, I think the, the, the fever analogy is a perfect one, actually. I mean, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you a perfect example that ties into COVID. Um, early on, when, when the, the trials were being done for COVID vaccine, a lot of friends of mine volunteered for those trials because they wanted to be in the, in the, in the vaccine group, right? They, we're hoping they weren't, weren't going to be in. They were willing to take the chance because if they didn't volunteer for the trial, they had no chance of getting a vaccine. So they, I have a friend in North Carolina who I remember um, he volunteers for the trial. He he gets either vaccine or placebo. The next day he wakes up and, and he's got fever and, 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 you know, sort of muscle aches. And he says, yes, I got the vaccine. See, that's the right attitude right. because what is your immune response doing? When you make an immune response and all the proteins are associated with the immune response have side effects. And those side effects include here. I mean, why do we have fever? We have fever because our immune system works better at a higher temperature. And when you're challenged with the virus or with, an, in this case, an antigen, you know, you rev up your immune system, which has side effects. So why, why ablate those? Why try and lessen those? And there's clear evidence that when you get a vaccine and you have fever, you will have a lesser immune response if you treat that that with with antipyretics but we do it all the time so I, I if that's what you mean by sort of informed by evolution i mean why is it that all 
you know, sort of us, I mean, the, you know, the sort of the endotherms, why is it all of all of us endotherms have fever? Where if you're an ectotherm and you're in a lizard, yeah. why is it you crawl on top of the rock to sun yourself when you're, when you're, you have a bacterial infection? There's a reason for all that. It, although, so the, I mean, I guess the, 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 the gist of my question uh, comes from uh, actually a guest that I've also had on the show, Randy Nessig. Are you familiar with him, Paul? n-e-s-s-e he is the you know his his life's work he's a uh, uh, psychiatrist by training but what he you know his real sort of passion i think is to try to darwinize the medical curriculum the idea being that most physicians will come out of their training without necessarily understanding the evolutionary mechanisms that result in particular you know, adaptive processes. And so there, there's a distinction. You may or may not have heard of this uh, epistemological distinction between proximate causes and ultimate causes. Proximate causes is where much of science operates. And that's perfectly fine. It's the how and the what of a mechanism, right? How does diabetes work? What are the factors that might increase your proclivity or propensity to get diabetes? And that's great. Most Nobel prizes have been won at the proximate level. That's fine. The ultimate explanation is the Darwinian why. Why would the mechanism have evolved to be of that form? And to fully understand any given phenomenon, you need you really do need to tackle it. Not necessarily the same scientists, but the collection of scientists have to tackle that phenomenon both at the proximate and ultimate level. Now, most physicians are trained to be uh, you know, operating in proximate world. There's a problem. I need to solve it. I don't need to necessarily worry about what the Darwinian why is. Maybe in your case you do because it just seems like viruses mutate. It it, it feels evolutionary, right? But, you know, does the typical physician know much about evolutionary theory? I know for a fact that it's a no because I have lectured to MBA students who come from health backgrounds and then I talk about, you know, the evolutionary roots of pregnancy sickness. And then I'll get a gynecologist come up to me and say, oh, my God, uh, uh, Professor Saad, I never even knew that explanation. And I'm a gynecologist. So is your so have I captured that correctly, that most physicians will go through medical school without hearing a hint of Darwin? Yes, I count myself among them. And I count myself among those who are, are relatively ignorant of the, this, these sorts of theories. I mean, for me, while it's true, I'm trained as a pediatrician and, and I do round on patients in our hospital who have infectious diseases. Mostly I'm a virologist. I mean, practically I'm a virologist. I spent most of my time in a windowless concrete block room at the Wistar Institute inoculating mice while we were trying to figure out which part of rotavirus, you know, induce protective immunity, which part of rotavirus cause you to be sick, create strains that that would be the best of both worlds, get immunity, don't get sick. And that that in 15 seconds, depressingly, you know, describes 25 years of my work. But I mean, that that's, uh, that's what I did. So I was sort of laser focused just on that and trying to solve the puzzle of this fire so we could keep children out of the hospital, out of the ICU and out of the morgue when this vaccine, you know, came out, it's been, it's been 17 years since that vaccine came onto the market in the United States and is now routinely recommended for all children in the world. So that that was what I did. I mean, so my my interest, I guess, in evolutionary biology solely related to viruses mutating. Gotcha. Uh, okay. Uh, a few kind of personal questions. You just mentioned, you know, you were working in the lab, Windelos lab, you're, you're a professor, you're, you're a practicing physician. You, you seem to come up with a book every Tuesday. I was going through your thing. It's like, uh, every weekend there's a new book by Paul Offit. It's, it's, it's annoying me. Your productivity is, is an attack on my manhood, but in any case, uh, which of these, I mean, I'm sure you love all of them. And actually that's one of the things that I admire most in people when they can truly be interdisciplinary and not, not just in terms of their scientific pursuits, but just in the tasks that they take on. It's very different to be a clinician than to be an academic in a windowless, uh, you know, office. Do you have today a preference? It, you know, you, you could only wear one hat and I'm going to remove all the other hats. What's the one you're going to pick and why? Meaning in terms of, of the, the work that I do in terms of the books that I've written. No. So, so if, for example, if I said, you might say, well, if, if I have nothing else that I can be allowed to do, then I'm just going to be an author or no, if you take away all options other than one, I'm going to be a clinician, which is the one that in the morning when you wake up gives you the most sort of gleeful rubbing of your hands. I'm excited by the day that to come. Writing. I writing, love writing. Right? Yeah. I enjoy the process of writing. Um, it's, it's, um, it's in many ways very similar to 
being a virologist where, where you know here you you know little um you're trying to create order out of chaos um and so you you do a series of experiments that allow you to answer a question i mean which of two viral proteins evoke neutralizing but same thing with writing i mean you have this sort of massive information that you're trying to whittle down into a compelling uh narrative that that is that's convincing for whatever you're writing about so i really love the process of writing and and i, I that's when i get up in the morning that's largely what i do that's why um, I've been able to write the books I've written, which I, I really enjoy. So if you took away everything else from me, didn't let me see patients, um, uh, but but uh, and didn't let me do experiments in virology, it's the writing. Uh, I'm probably the only person actually liked writing papers and liked writing grants. Well, you're looking at you're speaking to one because, uh, you know, if you if you were to ask me the same question, yes, I love all the different ele elements of my professional career, but there is something maybe not even quasi-mystical, maybe straight out mystical in the creative process, right? And by the way, you were kind enough, this this guy right here, the parasitic mind, you were one of the endorsers. I'm sure that that must have been one of the reasons why it became the international bestseller that it became. So thank you for having agreed to, to write such beautiful uh, endorsement for it. But, you know, I love the idea that I open up my laptop one day and I open up that Word document for the first time. There is not a single letter there. Fast forward 12, 14, 16 months later, there is a book that I press send that goes to the publisher. One one year, you know, 14 months later, people are sending me selfies with that book that they've consumed. So that creative impulse is is something truly mystical. So I completely uh, commiserate with, with with your love of writing. Yeah, it's just, it's, yeah, it's fun. It's always been fun. I've actually always, even in high school, I enjoyed writing, yeah. Do you, do you ever imagine writing any books that are not within the, the medical field? You know, some people have said that to me, wouldn't you be interested in writing fiction? I don't think I have that kind of talent. I don't, I mean, when I read people who write fiction that I love, I'm just really impressed at their ability to describe person or place or their ability to come up with interesting dialogue. I don't think I have that kind of talent. I mean, but not I fiction, not fiction, excuse me for interrupting, not fiction versus nonfiction, even staying with it. So for example, you know, I, my, my, several of my original books were all within, you know, evolutionary psychology and so on, because that's, that's my scientific interest. Then I got into the parasitic mind because I was seeing all of these bad ideas that were being spawned on university campuses. I wrote that book. My next book, which is forthcoming in July, is about, you know, the pursuit of happiness and the good life, which, you know, there's only been 73 trillion books written on it. But I thought that I had a unique outlook based on my personal experiences, based on my, you know, academic interests, that I can put together a fun and worthy book. And so I truly am a intellectual buffet seeker, if you'd like, uh, and and to, to to my detriment in a sense, because of course in academia, what you should do if you want to optimize, you know, pursue an optimal career is to be a stay in your lane guy. But I can't be a stay in your lane guy. That's why I can talk to Paul Offit one day, and tomorrow I can talk to a comedian on my show. I want to sample from the entire buffet of that life has to offer me. So. I could imagine you without going into fiction saying, I still want to stay in the nonfiction world, world, but I want to write in a completely different genre. Has that ever crossed your mind or you're just the medical guy? Well, I guess to some extent, I wrote a book called Bad Advice. Um, and the subtitle was, or why um, celebrities, politicians, and activists aren't your best source of health information, which was about communicating science. So, so that's a little different. I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm not, in any way educated as a science communicator, communicator period. But it was mostly just kind of like a Berenstein Bears book for scientists, meaning don't do what I just did, you know, and go through all this sort of trips and falls that I had trying to learn how to communicate science to the public and making a million mistakes along the line. Um, so that was different, I, I guess, in that it wasn't a strictly scientific or medical book. It was more how to communicate. And, you know, so that was fun. Okay, two more questions because I'm looking at the clock just to make sure that I get you to your next meeting on time. Uh, is, is five minutes okay? We can, we yeah, can five minutes. Five that's minutes, that's perfect. Okay, so uh, here's a maybe question out of left field. It's actually something that I discussed very briefly in The Parasitic Mind, if, if you may or may not remember. So I at one point in The Parasitic Mind, I talk about medical specialties and how political orientations within those medical specialties are you know, quite different. So surger, surgery, anesthesiology, and urology are actually quite conservative. And now I'm speaking to one who's on the other end of the political spectrum, uh, psychiatrists, 
infectious disease specialist, and pediatrician. So you're two of those three things uh, tend to be on the ultra, I don't want to say super woke, but the on the ultra, you know, liberal left. Do you have any theories as to why these medical specialties assort the way that they do on the political continuum? No. <laughs> I don't. I, I, I mean, I, well, the 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 easy answer, which is probably the wrong one, is, I mean, certainly as a pediatrician working in the hospital, I deal with you know with patients who have you know represent the whole spectrum out there, and I wonder whether a surgeon doesn't, you know, because they're dealing with somebody who's not talking at, at the time that they're doing the surgery, and they have you know, I, I don't know, I, I really don't know. I'm just so making... my my theory is that there is something utopian about some of the quote liberal fields where you're trying to change the world, and therefore some of the you know a priori liberal progressive policies seem to resonate with me being a utopian. Whereas when I'm fixing uh, a ruptured Achilles tendon, maybe I don't quite have a utopian view of the world. There is a Achilles tendon that I need to fix and it ends there. Is that, could that be, could that be yeah, it? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I'd like to say I'm the product of two conservative Republicans. My parents were conservative Republicans. My father fought in World War II. He was disappointed that I didn't fight in the Vietnam War, although I wasn't. Um, and so, um, but you know, I certainly I would consider myself a a, a a liberal Democrat. Although I'm not, I'm not. I would certainly not consider myself woke. <laughs> I guess I'm trying. To, I, I'm just trying to deal with like the fact that occasionally I speak to medical students all the time, and I was recently criticized for saying the phrase "pregnant women." Yes, very bad. It's it's, it's people who get pregnant, Paul. Right. People, bad, uh, bad, I, bad. Learn the hard the hard way. <laughs> okay. Last question, and then we can say quickly bye offline. Uh, it has become a tradition to ask this question. So one of my former doctoral uh, professors in, in psychology what is, is a gentleman by the name of Tom Gilovich, who pioneered the study, the, psycho the study of the psychology of regret. The idea being that regret can be of one of two forms. You can regret things due to actions. Uh, I regret that I cheated on my wife and that put an end to my marriage uh, versus regret due to inaction. You know, I went into uh, medicine because my dad and grandfather were, you know, physicians. But now that I'm 60 years old, I wish that I had gone into my first love, which is, uh, you know, painting, art, art. Uh, and it turns out that over the long term, Paul, uh, pe people's most weighing regrets are those of inaction. So if I turn the question to you now, you still have many more years left of life, but you know, you've certainly lived many years. If I ask you to look back, your one or two regrets, are you comfortable sharing what those might be? Well, I mean, I, I, there are certainly things I wish in retrospect I'd done differently, but but because I did them, I think I ended up learning things that made things better down the line. So I I, I don't regret it at all. I just think it's the it's the inevitable consequence of a lifelong live that you're going to do things that that you wish you hadn't done uh, in retrospect, but but you had to do them because you had to do them at the time because for whatever reason, and so you learn maybe you shouldn't have done that, and so you don't do it again, and or so you don't or you learn from it. It's just the learning. I just see it as a learning process. So um, that's well, how that's, I see that's a, that's a prescription for life well lived. If you don't have many looming regrets, that's wonderful. Paul, what a pleasure to talk to you. Please stay on the line so I could say goodbye officially offline. Please come back. Great talking to you. Great seeing you. Cheers. Thank you.